0: Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I'm excited to be talking about resilience with University of Minnesota professor, Dr. Ann Mastin. Dr. Mastin's career has focused on studying risk and resilience in children and families whose lives are threatened by adversity. In this interview, we discuss the risks children face when resilience is not developed and the benefits young people can realize when they are encouraged to tackle difficult challenges. We also talk about the risks social media, climate change, and bullying pose to young people. Dr. Mastin provides advice for how parents, teachers, and other adults can help build the resilience necessary for children to overcome the obstacles they will face later in life. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarkconspiracy.com. Dr. Mastin, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. <laughs> I knew that I wanted to do an episode on childhood resilience. And I was doing some research on it, and I kept on running across this name, and I said, I'm going to look this woman up. And, <laughs> and there she was, Dr. Ann Mastin at the University of Minnesota, right in my backyard. And I reached out to you, and you agreed to be on the show. So I'm so excited to have this conversation. Can you describe the work that you do?
1: Well, I'm a child psychologist and a researcher here at the University of Minnesota. But I've been doing research for many years to try to understand the processes of resilience how do children overcome adversity to do well in life and i want to study that because i think it's important to understand resilience in order to try to foster it when it isn't happening in the lives of some children
0: i mean how did you get interested in this you know was there a point in your life where you said oh this is what i want to do
1: right when i was finishing college i got an invitation from a professor to Go to a research job at the National Institute of Mental Health. And I met a professor named Norman Garmazy, who was at the University of Minnesota and a good friend of my boss. And he told me about his research that he did on children who overcome adversity. He had started to get interested in kids who were at risk for some reason, either because they came from a family, troubled family. Or they had some sort of genetic risk, or they were growing up in poverty. Because he and other researchers at that time realized that a lot of the kids who people thought were going to have trouble growing up because they came from really disadvantaged backgrounds were actually growing up to be successful and doing fine. How is it that people overcome risk? How is it that people we think are burdened with adversity or have been traumatized? manage to overcome that and grow up to be successful, contributing people. And we need to understand how that happens because we need to support kids where it isn't already happening naturally. And so that I came here in 1976 and I've been here ever since. I did finish a PhD along the way and then I became a researcher in my own right.
0: When you think about a definition for resilience, what would your definition be?
1: Well, in the case of a child, I I think of resilience as the capacity to adapt successfully to challenges and adversity through many different kinds of processes. And I think it's a problem that people sometimes think of resilience as only something that's inside of a person. Actually, a lot of human resilience, especially in the case of children, comes from our relationships with other people. It comes from support in the world around us. If you think of a young child, it's crucial that young children have the love and caregiving from adults taking care of them in order to develop into healthy people and thrive. But they also need nutrition. <laughs> they, need to be, they need clean air to breathe and wa- clean water to drink. I mean, there's lots of things that contribute to positive development but in the case of resilience you can apply that idea to the resilience of any dynamic complicated system so you can talk about family resilience or or the resilience of our economy or the and you know we're all worried about climate change because and that we we want to promote the resilience of our planet but it's the idea is you know how does a system overcome challenges and either transform itself or manage to recover from a blow either a sudden blow or a you know a long term chronic kind of challenge like poverty is usually not a sudden event whereas if you lose a parent or you're attacked by somebody or you're you know you know there's a terror attack of some kind that comes on suddenly but a lot of the adversities that kids and adults experience are more gradual and in the case of adversity like the pandemic you have this sort of complicated challenges unfolding over a long period of time in waves and the pandemic is a is a great example of a very complicated and and massive kind of disaster that affected many many systems that support human life and development and i think the pandemic illustrates the idea that human resilience, that, you know, we realize that we depend on many systems. We depend on our the people around us that we have relationships with, but we also depend on our healthcare system and the electrical grid and the internet up and running and schools being in session. I think it, businesses began to realize that you know, we really, for businesses to have resilience in a pandemic, a lot of other things have to be happening as well. We have to have childcare systems, for example. It, you know, I, I think some of the most stressed out people during the pandemic were the parents of young children who were trying hard to juggle distance, you know, working from a distance, working at home and, and it, taking care of kids with very little help to do that.
0: I can relate to that. And I feel like we got away pretty easily because our children were really young and their school only shut down for six weeks. So we were home for six weeks. We didn't have homework or distance learning to manage or anything like that. But I could imagine somebody who might be in their thirties and who's kind of still making their mark on their career and might have middle school children. And they've got to balance the need to perform at work and also keep their children healthy and and studying and and things like that, so those those people it must have been so challenging for them and for their children and to and especially at that vital age where the young people were disconnected from their friends in a face-to-face manner it It must have been so, so challenging.
1: These are really I think many of us had advantages of health, you know healthcare systems that were working of electricity and internet i have done a lot of research with families and kids experiencing homelessness and if you're living in extreme poverty a lot of the kids out there or even students at the university of minnesota not all of them had access to a reliable broadband internet that was <laughs> necessary in order to do in order to do homework at home or just food
0: it 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 it, it was uh, eye-opening to me that many particularly in minneapolis many school children get both breakfast and lunch and that was taken away in you know march march 16th of 2020 it's just gone it's done well the school
1: systems though made a huge and many of the the ngos in the area made a big effort to provide food like You know, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, they delivered food to kids who needed it. And, you know, you're probably aware of the Northside Achievement Zone, this organization that tries to help kids in Minneapolis who are living in poverty. And they really mobilized an all-out effort to work with the schools, but try to provide not just food, but other kinds of support to make computers and iPads and Internet. and you know, provide all kinds of support for these families that were stranded at home or even or stranded in a shelter without access to a lot of things that some of us take for granted. But it was hard for everyone, but it was extremely difficult for for people who don't have easy access to health care and food and money to replace what was coming from a school.
0: When you're doing your research, is there? do you measure the resilience of individual children and how do you do that if you do?
1: We can look at, you know, children at risk and who's doing well. And so you measure risk and doing well. But then if you're going to measure the resilience, well, what makes a difference? And if it's, you know, having effective parenting, for example, then we need to measure parenting. If it's, you know, have, being optimistic and having hope and having good self-regulation skills and good planning skills. There's a lot of processes that go into resilience and, and people have tried to measure them. But as we learned more, we, people began to develop little questionnaires and things to try to figure out if a given child has protective factors. There was a long version with 28 items. Now there's a short, or shorter version with 12 items, but it's interesting to see what's on the list. It has things like, you know, do you have you know people you can trust to help you? Do you have you know a su- supportive teachers and things like that. It's like questions about whether kids feel optimistic and hopeful, whether they have people that help them, whether they feel safe in their schools, whether they like school. I mean, one of the most surprising things to me at first, no longer surprising, was that when people did research all over the world with different kinds of kids who were experiencing many different kinds of adversity, they kept coming up with the same protective factors.
0: I'm wondering, in the case of, let's say, the homeless population or children who have been in war torn environments. How do we address the needs of of those children?
1: First, what are the, you know, you start with fundamental survival needs. Right after the terror attack, right after the hurricane, you know, survival comes first.
0: Maslow's hierarchy.
1: Right, right. I mean, but once you have, once you're surviving, you know, how do you help children overcome these difficulties? And a lot of what you see actually and what, works really effectively with kids in the early stages after some, you know, really terrible experience, you know, is restoring a sense of normal and belonging. And that's why often after, you know, major catastrophes or disasters, one of the things you'll see is people trying to reestablish school, even in a like a refugee camp or, you know, in the shelter after The tsunami water recedes. People will begin to try to restore the the normal routines of life that give kids, as well as everybody else in the community, a sense of, oh, things are getting back to normal. We can recover from this, and they start, you know, cooking meals and setting up school. And there's something very reassuring about reestablishing normal routines. And people, you know, kids need a chance to play. Adolescents need a chance to hang out. And they also, a lot of kids really benefit from the experience of pitching in and helping others.
0: What is the benefit to these kids who have these very, very difficult upbringings if they are to be resilient through these traumatic experiences or these hardships? You know, if you live through
1: stressful experiences, what do you gain from that? And I think it's, useful to think about your immune system because we've learned from a lot of research that for your immune system to optimize, it has to be exposed. The same can be said of stress. There's kind of normal exposure to challenges. All kids need that. They, kids need challenges so they can figure out how to handle challenges, how to cope and gain some confidence that they can handle things. There are Skills you acquire if you have to face danger. And we don't want kids to be overwhelmed. You don't want to deliberately expose kids to trauma. You know, that's not the idea here. But it's still the case that experience matters and you do get, you know, have some takeaways. You do gain some skills from the process as a parent or as a child of having to overcome difficulties. As parents, we just wanna make sure that our kids are ready You know, for just everyday experiences. They have to learn how to get up after they fall down.
0: For a lot of young people, particularly those young people who are informed and, and fairly privileged, have had an op- opportunity for education. There's a high expectation for what life should deliver and a seemingly low hope for what the future looks like, and I think a lot of that—not hopelessness, but lower hope than what I had growing up—is a, a result of climate change. And I think this is a really, really bad recipe for the future or their future. When you have these high expectations that social media has shown us, oh, these—this is what your peers are doing, and it's a great life, and you know all of these things—and <clears throat> but the earth is not going to be here in 30 years. I I, so I, I'd love to for you to talk about the importance of hope and if you agree with this idea around high expectations and low hope.
1: There's a lot of concern and pessimism among our young adults. And I would argue that there's good reason for that because they're looking around them and seeing you know, the return of conflicts that we thought, the kind of conflicts that we thought had ended with World War II are bubbling up in different places of the world. And they're beginning to, you know, the reality of climate change is beginning to rear itself. And it's realistic to be extremely concerned about life on this planet. And I really think that we're on the brink of Requiring and needing to mobilize kind of a global all out mobilization to address the climate crisis, and that what young people need to be enlisted. They are the children and youth and young adults are the big stakeholders in climate change, and they're extremely worried about it. And I think they're extremely frustrated, both on the gun safety front in the United States in particular as a you kind of a unique issue we have but with all kids everywhere on the climate crisis like what is going on here adults aren't doing anything i mean that they're frustrated with the lack of attention and progress and i think that concern and energy needs to be and you know engaged in solutions and There's a growing interest in giving a voice and a seat at the table to not just young adults, but also to kids that they can make a difference. And there's new research on, you know, climate education and showing that kids can help their parents learn how learn about the issue. You know, they can spread awareness, they can spread solutions. But I, the, the big antidote for that feeling of hopelessness and pessimism is agency and action. But anyway, I think there, we have a global lived experience from the pandemic that I think is helping to both make us take climate change more seriously and also maybe to be a little more optimistic that what we can do if we get our act together.
0: So, this is a good segue because we're talking about plasticity or the ability to change as a human species, right? Right. But let's talk about the ability to change as an individual. Mm -hmm. When you see a child who doesn't have a high level of resilience, how can we change that person?
1: Human beings have a lot of capacity for change throughout the lifespan, but there are periods of development when the human brain and our our psychology is more open to change, so kids who maybe didn't have the best experiences earlier can be uh, influenced to a great degree by what's happening during the early adolescent years. And again, I mean, as an older adult, I think there are other windows like that, and sometimes I think those windows of plasticity are triggered by adversity. so you have to change the conditions they're living in you know if children have been living in a you know an orphanage with no not enough care or not enough food you have to change their living conditions but i've seen children come out of situations where they weren't getting what they needed adopted into families that provided them with ba- you know just basic family care Tender loving care, what they needed, just they didn't need super parents. They just need regular old parents. But and then you you see the, a kind of a growth spurt of recovery. Similarly, there there, I've known people, and maybe you have too, who were kind of struggling. They they grew up in a family where things weren't going very well. There was either abuse or violence or something. Substance use, maybe. And they go down this really dark road, and adolescents fall in maybe with a bad crowd. And I've seen those ex- many examples of people who turn their lives around in the transition to adulthood, because there's a window of opportunity there. The brain keeps developing all the way into the late twenties, and there, you know, during that transition to adulthood, you know, around seventeen to twenty-five, the there's you know, a lot of opportunities to take yourself down a different road. And around the same time, like you can join the military or become an apprentice or go to college or whatever, the brain is also beginning to gain capability for planning ahead in a new way. But, you know, older, early adulthood is a period where, you know, people are starting to really think about the future. They have more brain power for that. And if you put opportunities around them, you can see remarkable changes. I did research over time with young people from the Twin Cities area. We followed them from 20 years from childhood into adulthood. And I would be in touch with some of them personally and, you know, meet them in person. As a teenager, things weren't going very well. And then I meet them again 10 years later and like they're doing fine. And they would, they would say things to me like, guess I surprised you, right? Because I knew I knew their history and have told me things like I was in trouble. I was with a group of kids that was taking me in a wrong direction and I moved to Alaska, got a job, and I, I knew I had to get a fresh start or I joined the military because I, want, I needed a change. So people sometimes put themselves in a new situation and I've also, like one of the young people in our study, when I met him like this, and he, he could tell I was surprised, he said, he explained that he had fallen in love with a police officer's daughter, and that helped him get back on a, a positive road. He'd never had a really positive father figure. So there's possibilities for change all along the way, and often change is precipitated by new opportunities, new relationships.
0: It, it sounds like there's a an element of growth mindset in the people who are making these changes. When they're older. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. at this transition period between high school and maybe joining the military or moving to Alaska or I'm in a new relationship, it, how important is that mindset? Well,
1: it, I think it's important. It's a coming together of like, A a new mindset that's partly depending on new brain power, but a new mindset, but also combining with a new opportunity. But, you know, the drivers, when you're older, you see that mindset can drive change. But when you're really small, they need the help of other people around them to help support them to get, you know, opportunities don't fall in your lap when you're three you know, you they need environments, they need support, they need, you know, childcare systems and preschools and teachers. And, you know, they also need food and health care and other things as well. So I think it's, you have to think developmentally here. What, what do kids need at different ages? A lot of what's important with really small children is to make sure that their families have support, support the family so they can be effective parents. But as kids get older, they begin to branch out and they can make use of opportunities and people around them outside the family
0: what advice do you have for parents who w- want to build resilience in their children
1: yeah well a lot of building resilience is about simply being a you know an effective parent you know life has plenty of opportunities for kids to experience challenges i think as a parent you know you want your kids to learn how to manage difficulties but not be you don't want to overwhelm them you want to you know protect your kids from traumatic experiences but i think it's important for parents to let their kids learn from mistakes and have the and and learn that they can solve problems as they get older but i think that a lot of resilience will happen just in the course of normal life i mean life is full of ups and downs. And right now with the pandemic and the coming climate change, even more than usual, perhaps. But I think we just need to let, allow our children to have interesting, challenging experiences and support them when they do, but not overdo it. Because if we overdo it, it takes away, you know, if you overprotect, your kids don't own their accomplishments. They don't gain confidence. They don't experience their own skills so they ha- you know it's it's a it's a daily challenge maybe for parents but i think most parents are pretty good at kind of finding that middle ground where you know you want your kids to whether they're learning to walk or learning how to you know navigate going off to a new job or going off to college you want them to figure it out but you want to g- give them a little bit of scaffolding when they're just getting started you know it's you don't want people to start from scratch to to figure it out all entirely on their own
0: it probably depends on the age but what are some of the risk factors that parents or teachers should be looking for that a child a child may be going down the wrong path
1: well i think as kids get older if they're hanging around with other children that you know are bullying or involved in violence and things like that, get involved in substance use, those are very dangerous. So, you know, it's important that to be aware when your kids are getting involved with kids that are heading down a path that's going to get them into trouble.
0: I I can tell you as a former kid, I was really good at hiding that. So what you... (laughs) (laughs) what should what what might be some indicators that parents could look for some signals
1: yeah being aware and i mean i think having relationships and being interested and inviting kids over having a house where kids feel comfortable visiting that sort of thing i think just you know interacting enough that you know some of the people your kids are with but i think you know you have to have some confidence in your kids if you've been you know if they've been learning all along and you and being a good role model as well.
0: I find it remarkable how candid many kids are with their parents now. We, we didn't tell our parents anything. We didn't want to disclose anything that we were doing.
1: Yeah, I think that is different. And not all kids do, of course. Right. But yeah, I do. I agree. I think there's a lot more of that than there used to be. And I think the pandemic was interesting because parents and kids were around each other more in some cases, or felt stuck at home more, as the case may be. But I thought one of the positives of the pandemic, one of the silver linings, is you saw a lot more families out doing things together, just walking the dog or something, because there, we were so confined that you had to be creative about getting out of the house.
0: I wanted to ask you about social media and what that might be doing to our young people's resilience and specifically the amount of time they're spending on it and also some of the messaging that they might be receiving like bullying and, and things of that nature.
1: Yeah. Social media is a very complicated question. Like all inter inventions we we humans come up with, it's a tool and it can be a risk factor or a very powerful protective factor. I mean, Social media has made it possible for kids to, you know, be in touch with each other and have friendships at a distance. But it's, and during disasters, it's made it possible for people to be rescued and help each other and find each other. But on the other hand, it's become a platform for absolutely terrible experiences of not just bullying, but far worse. I mean, trafficking, bullying, all kinds of terrible things. And I don't, I think. We're, we're still learning but as societies and parents and regulators how, what we need to do to foster the positive and curtail some of the negative effects. But, I mean, I think there's been a lot of problems with social media in terms of its impact on the mood and mental health of adolescents.
0: And and that gets to what I was talking about in terms of expectations and, and hope. I think it has messed with that.
1: Yeah. And I think kids need a lot of media education. I think we're going to need more and more education about media. You need critical thinking skill. Kids need to be able to recognize what's true and what's not. And that's very difficult. Adults media. need
0: that help, too. <laughs> yeah, true. They <laughs> really do. Yeah. So if you were doing this over again... As a as a mother and you had young children, when would you give them access to a phone, and when would you allow them access to social media? If you were able to control that, knowing well, that I'm, our, I'm, our parents aren't able, yeah. To. Well,
1: I know I'm watching that with grandchildren, right? And I don't I don't intrude in that process. That's between the parents and my grandchildren. But you know, and you can see the mixed feelings. I mean, parents want their kids to be able to reach them in an emergency. We've gotten used to that, that we we want kids to be able to reach us or us to reach them in an emergency, whether it's, you know, a lockdown at school or, you know, being stranded somewhere. We want communication. And this, but this is reminds me of the questions when my kids were young before there were smartphones. Like, how old, when is a child old enough to One of the big questions in my era was old enough to go on the bus by themselves or with their friend to the Mall of America. And, you know, when are they old enough to like go go to stores on their own and stuff like that? All parents in every era have faced these questions like here's, you know, when are you ready to do something, whether it's, you know, drive somewhere in the car I remember one of my kids when she got the day she got her driver's license, she wanted to drive in a snowstorm <laughs> to a mall, and we, we vetoed that one. But you know, these these are just always parents are struggling with that. But social media is tricky because it does provide. I think we've all gotten so used to always having our smartphones with us as a safety device, uh, and you know, you can get directions, you can get help, and that sort of thing. But then. There's lots of other uses. And I think, you know, kids need a lot more savvy and knowledge about the dangers, too, of social media. And this is not just a question about what age. It's a question about a particular child. Kids really differ.
0: Their level of of maturity. Maturity, risk-taking, whatever. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for your time, and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week with Australian survivalist, author, and stunt performer Kai Furneau. During a 21-day survival challenge in the Amazon, Kai managed to live on just 1,000 calories while burning more than 40,000. In our discussion, Kai shares her resilience methods for overcoming and enduring great hardships in the wild. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.